this is our membership class podcast, so thank you for taking the time to check it out. If you have not yet listened to the first episode, that was on why it's important to become a church member. So it seems like an old school, outdated thing, but again, if you've not had the chance to go back and listen, please do so on why become a church member. Uh, Today's episode is on how to become a church member. And just as a reminder, we would love to have you come and join our classes in person at the Extension office on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. But if you are not able to do so, you can also simply listen to these podcasts and catch up on the material. Uh, So again, without further ado, here is our second membership class on how to become a church member. starting tonight with session two, how do I become a church member? What is the process for this? But I want to begin with a discussion question. I love this last time to hear your thoughts. We're, we're talking about boundaries of entrance into a community. What are some examples of communities that need a boundary? And again, this question, you can look on that little guide in front of you. It should be on there. But what are some examples of communities that need a boundary? Anything come to mind there? Are you talking about incarceration, like the, the city and county jail? Is that yeah, the, the county jail, that technically is a community, right? <laughs> That's a great point, Mike, yeah. Maybe not a community you want to belong to, but you're right, there are boundaries there. Yeah, some clear lines, physical boundaries as well. Pretty strict admission policy, maybe not. But there, there is some boundaries there. What are some other examples? That was outside the box, Mike. That's right. Yes, school. <laughs> True. Yep. Talking to some Trinity College students, not Trinity, but Sterling <coughs> College students back there. Uh, like Trinity. That's where you get that mix up, right? And Travis, who went to Trinity. But uh, if you're going to a college, usually it's not everyone is admitted. That's really difficult to do as a college. There's an admission policy of who is allowed to be accepted. <coughs> any, any other examples for more? Say what? Yeah, absolutely. Certain occupations have a boundary and a line to that community. Did you say something? I was going to say the same thing, like yeah. districts or government. Bodies. Yes. There's usually a pass or an examination for some roles that you have to show you have a knowledge of the field you're about to enter into. That's a really great idea. Say a construction worker that's never done construction before, that could be a little difficult. Like usually there's some kind of license that's needed to enter into that kind of work, so there's a boundary there. I think if we did this long enough, you'd find there's a boundary for every community. I don't think there is such a thing as a community without a boundary, right? Even if we're going to say, like, all of humanity, but even that has a boundary, right, of what it means to be human. And so no matter what you're defining a community, its definition is its boundary, what's allowed in this or not. So same thing for the church, but I kind of wanted to look at that a little bit more. Should the church have a boundary of belonging? Uh, maybe that's a little strange to ask that, but again, any, any thoughts on this? Should the church have boundaries of belonging? Yeah, Leon. Should the church follow the teachings of Christ? Yeah. You got where I'm going, and it's true. We'll, we'll dive right in. It's true. Jesus <laughs> clearly made boundaries, right? In Matthew 25, he talks about the sheep and the goats in this parable, about those that he sets aside, and those that he receives that belong to him. So he's clearly saying there is a boundary 
of belonging and who is mine and who is not mine. And so we need to look at this as a church body. And, and as we on Sunday mornings gather, we're not saying, here's who's allowed to walk through our doors. Here's who's allowed to participate in worship with us. We don't have that. We want anyone to come in and be with us, right? But we're not saying that just because you walk in these doors that you're actually a disciple or follower of Jesus. That, that's a different line that he's the one that's ultimately determined. But as we talked about last week in this kind of metaphor of an embassy uh, as an outpost for a country, right? we as the local church are functioning as an outpost, an embassy for the kingdom of God. And it's our responsibility to, to best represent his kingdom here. And so we want to share that saying, who actually has given their life to Christ? Who, who's following him so that we can recognize that belonging? We want to welcome everyone, but we know that not everyone belongs to the family of God. Do you hear me on that? So it's partly what membership is clarifying. We want to reflect his kingdom as a local outpost and embassy. So first of all, I want to walk through what, what we're looking for. What, what boundaries do you need to cover, right, to become a member? What are we asking you to go through? First of all, we're asking you to belong to Christ. Belong to Christ. If you, again, have that guide in front of you, you can fill in some of these blanks as we go. So we have to ask, though, what does that mean to belong to Christ? How do, how do we do that? Beautifully, the truth that Jesus is preaching, I love, this is really open to everyone. It's through repentance and through faith, which, which everyone can do by the <coughs> grace of God. This is not beyond anyone's ability by the grace of God, again. But first of all, it's repentance that is required. As Jesus preaches, you see there in Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And likely, if you're sitting in this room, you've heard about repentance before. This is not just apologizing or feeling sorry for things that you have done and yet continuing to remain in them. That's not real repentance. It's actually a turning and a changing of your lifestyle so that you no longer walk in and live in the things that you used to. You're saying, I'm leaving that behind and I'm headed in this new direction towards God. So it's a, it's a cutting off these old dead behaviors and setting yourself on and taking on the new. So repentance is key and required to belong to Christ. But with this, secondly, is faith. Putting our trust in Jesus. Repentance and faith. It says this in Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Paul is packing in a great deal of powerful truth into that paragraph. But he's making this point that we're actually brought into relationship with God, not by our works, right, but by grace and through trust in him. So this is foundational, not from what we were able to do, but trusting in Jesus. So to belong to Christ, we're asking for you to actually know him, which again happens through repentance, turning around, and trusting in him. Faith and repentance. 
I just want to pause there before we go on any further. Any questions about that? I'm guessing none of that's too radical or unheard of before we're here tonight, but it is important to cover even the most obvious basics. Okay, I have an obvious. Go for it, Margie. Um, okay, I don't quite get that. I know that as to come close to Christ, we have to repent mm-hmm. and believe that He is the Son of God, that He died and resurrected. Okay. So how can we earn our self? It sounds to me, what if they don't turn away right? You know, you have habits. They have People have habits. They have addictions mm-hmm. yeah. and stuff like that. I know it's, you said they had to turn away from their old habits, but doesn't that come with time? Absolutely. That's a great point. If we're saying <coughs> you have to repent, and repentance means real change in your life to truly know him, doesn't mean you're doing some kind of work to earn that salvation. Yeah. Maybe say this way, you know, it talks about in scripture. True faith, true faith reveals itself. And a faith without works, without actually changed behavior, without repentance, is dead. Right? It's useless. No, actually it's not, because it's actually trusting in Jesus. So I'm trusting in him and saying, Lord, I know I need you. I'm not able to do this on my own. I'm not good enough nor ever could be good enough to earn being in a relationship with you. I'm dead in my sins. I I don't have this, but I trust you, right, your death for me, that I can be made right and justified before God. How does that work, the boundaries thing then? Absolutely. Yeah, so this trusting then, right, this trusting, if it's real, God's actually doing a work in our heart. He's changing us and giving us a new heart. So what flows out of that is now new living. And in new behavior, because he makes my heart love him. So now I, I want to leave behind these old dead things, and I want to follow and know him. So if I say I know him, but I stay in the old things, it, it means my faith is dead. I've never really given my heart to him. They have but to I, wait then to join the church? No, that, yeah. we wouldn't say that. No, that's so, what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a great question. So if someone's saying, I trust in Jesus, I really want to follow him, so that's great. You can join and be a part of the church. I want to hear that confession. I want to hear that in their life, right? But we're not going to set a period of, sorry, you got to show that over six months, right? Okay. you got to prove to us, because that does get a little bit muddy. Yeah. Um, and we don't see Jesus doing that. He's like, no, you, you trust in me, and that's it. That's it. But that trust and its authenticity will be revealed through their lifestyle of repentance. hope that makes sense. Otherwise, we have dead faith that James talks about. Um, one thing I want to acknowledge and say in the beginning, you might be wondering, there's uh, someone else that I'd switch off and on here with. Last week, Paul, he's down in Texas uh, at a conference, so we're missing him this week, but he will be back the next two. Love being able to trade off with him next week, right now in this moment. Um, great. can answer questions better right now, too. So keep these questions coming. This is, this is really helpful. Because, again, you might bring things up that we need to clarify that I might be skipping, so please keep asking questions. I'm going to jump to two because we're going to have a later section where I think we're going to have a lot more discussion. So, number two here. Be baptized. So, first of all, belong to Christ through faith that reveals itself in repentance. And secondly, we're asking you to be baptized. Now, to clarify why we're saying this, I want to point out two opposite errors that I want us to avoid as we think about baptism. The one is that Baptism is merely a formality. That there's no power beyond it being a public statement. So it's not really that important or necessary. Maybe you've kind of heard this 
version of that. It's not really that important. You can get to it when the time comes. And this is one error that I want us to avoid. We see the importance of baptism in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When people have heard Peter preaching, they say, what must we do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent. And then what? Key, right off the bat, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So immediately he's saying, no, don't, don't wait, don't hold off, this is not secondary, this is deeply important and part of our obedience to Jesus. <clears throat> Romans 6 highlights this as well, the mysterious power, beautiful to baptism, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Seeing something today from John Chrysostom, he's a preacher way a long time ago, talked about how uh, baptism is really our moment of death. It's our cross. So, so Jesus, he died and was raised to life three days later. So we also die to ourselves. But where are we expressing that death? Where where are we united with Jesus in that moment? Saying here in Romans 6, it's in our baptism that we are dying with Christ and being buried. And that we're also being raised to a newness of life. So clearly there's some mystery and power to this. So don't set it off as a mere formality. However, on the opposite side, we could say it's not just important, it's absolutely necessary, as in, you can't have faith or know Christ until you are baptized. So we say that you're not even a Christian at all, you're, you're, you're not saved, really. I think this would also be an error for us, that maybe we can see clarity in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. As Jesus is being crucified, you might know the story, one of the thieves on the cross next to him expresses faith in Jesus. And Jesus answered him right there on the cross in a conversation in the midst of death. Jesus speaks, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. <coughs> so clearly we have someone expressing faith in Jesus. And a promise from him that they will be with him in paradise. Pretty, no, pretty definitively, that guy never had an opportunity to be baptized, right? So clearly we don't want to say to people, I'm sorry, you never baptized, you clearly don't know Christ at all. We, we don't want to go into that error either. So what are we saying about baptism? It is a physical expression of our faith in Jesus. This is why it's powerful. It's a real expression of our trust, our faith in Jesus. So faith doesn't begin in baptism, but it it is a physical expression of it. I think this is a gift from God, because it's easy to say, I trust you, Christ. But there's something definitive about this moment of going under the water and coming out of our hearts to express that. It's helpful for us. And saying, I'm dying to my old ways. I'm being buried to the sin that used to hold me. And I'm being raised to new life because of the power of Jesus. And as we do that and trust in him, there is real freedom that comes out of baptism. There is real power in that moment because of our faith in Christ. Do you see this? That's the connection there. So we don't want to treat it lightly at all. It's a bedrock expression of our faith. And in the New Testament, is a constant pointer to our salvation. You've been baptized, right? There's the point of your salvation, your expression of faith in Christ. So for us, King's Cross, connect a little bit more. We practice 
what's called believer's baptism, where we're only baptizing people who have an understanding of the gospel and have trusted in Christ. There's other traditions that do infant baptism that honestly we respect. They're, they're brilliant, fantastic, wonderful Christians that practice infant baptism. We don't want to look down on them or say they're foolish and ridiculous. That's an unhealthy heart to have. I think as we just wrestle with scripture and what we see there, I think the best practice is for us to say, if, if it's an expression of faith, and that faith really requires understanding what God has done, I, I trust you, then we should be baptizing those who actually have the capacity to understand. Which is why we don't baptize infants, but we do dedicate them. Right? You've seen that in the <coughs> services where we say, hey, these parents just had a baby, right? And they're saying that we want to raise this child in the ways of Jesus. And we as a church are saying we want to come alongside you and be witnesses and examples of the life of Jesus. So we won't be practicing infant baptism, even as we will respect others who do and understand that. Um, But we will ask that people be baptized as adults um, to be a member. Uh, Let me say that a little bit more clearly. Um, it's, it's clearly tied to our union. We believe it should be only those who have trusted in Christ, which requires an understanding of the gospel. So it, if someone comes into King's Cross and wants their child, their infant, to be baptized, we won't be doing that. However, out of respect for other traditions, right, and the people that have experienced infant baptism, and they want to be a member of King's Cross, we will allow them to be a member of King's Cross. Does that make sense? But if they then come and want to have their infant baptized, we won't be doing that. So, so we're trying to walk a fine line here. So if someone says, hey, I've been following Jesus for decades, and I was baptized as an infant, and I want to be a member, we would encourage you to get baptized as an adult. I think that's ideal. I think that's a good thing. However, if you're saying, I would really rather not do that. This was a very powerful thing for my family growing up. I really respect this. And there's, these are the biblical reasons why I view it this way. We're not going to say to you, you can't be a member because of that. Does that make sense? This, this is a fine line to walk, and I understand some of you might disagree with that. You might not like that. And I, I'm with you. I'm wrestling with this as well. But I think this is the best line for us. To <clears throat> We're going to ask you to be baptized as an adult. I clearly think this is the best way. If you're saying, I, I can't, I really have my conviction that my infant baptism was a legitimate thing. You can become a member of King's Cross, but we will not be practicing infant baptism as a church. Sorry if I was not clear in all of that. There's a lot of little caveats and things to share. Any questions on that one? Might even revisit that here in a little bit. When's our next baptism? I don't have that planned. Uh, you know, this is the tough part of meeting at the high school. Uh, I've seen some people, they have like a, a big feeding trough that's kind of bring in and just fill it with water, could do it that way. They're kind of waiting till the summer, but it doesn't feel right to do it once a year. And so I've really got to figure that out a little bit more. So yeah. it might be... You need warm water, too. That's true. We can absolutely do that. I do love being able to do it with the full body there. Um, I know there's actually some precedents for just doing that whenever. Right? You know, you see the, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's just baptized on the side of the road by Philip. He's not waiting for a church service. So, But all that being said, there's a power to doing that in front of the church. Leon? Isn't it fair to say that another purpose for baptism is to take someone's body? Say that again? Edification of the body. Absolutely, yeah. I would say that. 
Um, I, I think it does edify the body. If you've ever been in a baptism service, like, who's not like, man, I like feel the power of God here. I feel the joy. It is edifying. <clears throat> we can share that together. I'd love to do that. Porsche. Um, so like, back home, I had a church home as well, and I was baptized baptized there as well, but I was around like 12, 13, and even then I still had questions about it, and I like growing more in faith and more in God. It's like, I found that this is more of a church home, because back home my church has changed a lot from when I was younger, and it's like not what I remember. Mm-hmm. And so, is it like bad to be like baptized again, or is it just like... Yeah. I'm in the position that it is okay to be baptized again. And this is actually a really personal challenge with each person, right? And looking back is actually, in that moment, was there more faith than I even realized? Even if it's just the tiny faith of a mustard seed, that I was barely walking with Christ. He was still faithfully uniting himself with me. And that now in this many-year journey through a lot of muck and mire that I'm not proud of, I actually see that Christ was working a long time ago. I'd say, keep that baptism. There's something important there. But if you're like, you know what, I really didn't know Jesus, and I'll just baptize and please my parents, or do this thing as part of this church tradition, and I tell you, I did not know him, but now I do, and I really want to walk in this step of obedience, because I feel like it wasn't from my heart, I'm not in a position to say, no, we're not going to baptize you. I, I really think, no, there's a power to this, and I don't think Jesus can be like, no, what are you doing? You can't be baptized twice. You know, like, that's not going to be an anger from him. I really don't believe that there's grace from him and understanding our hearts. So if the, I honestly, Porsche, if there's a desire for that in conversation, really open to that. Again, we're walking some lines here that other traditions would disagree with us, but just doing our best to walk in wisdom in that. Any other questions? Yeah, Jolene. Well, I've been baptized three times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my life has changed so much since I went Mm-hmm. to this church mm-hmm. and so do you think I need to be baptized again? I think again it would just be conversation about those other moments of baptism <coughs> and it, even if you're saying I, I think I really did have faith in Jesus but I'm now in a different place where I know him more I'd say still hold on to that old baptism yeah. because there's a beauty to that there really is and like actually makes me see God's faithfulness that even though I was in a really <coughs> awful, terrible messy season where I hardly knew him look at how he's followed me and taken me through so you actually get to hold on to your baptism more. Otherwise, it could be a marker of, like, uh, now I'm in a better place and I've earned this more. When that's actually, like, man, I was still, like, awful. And then we really see the power of it. I belong to him when I was in an ugly place. Um, well, let's keep moving, too. These are great questions. Thank you for bringing these up, guys. Again, if I'm not being clear, please stop making these. About to get more challenging. All right. <laughs> Thirdly, we're going to ask you to agree with the statement of faith. Let's agree with our statement of faith. And I'm going to read our statement of faith here in a little bit. Uh, since we can see all these details, and after I read it, give you a chance to ask questions. It's going to be a lot to go through in this. But first I want to talk about a term called triage. It's a medical term. And it's, it's used to refer to uh, doctors practicing judgment on the seriousness of an injury or an illness. So they're practicing triage when they're evaluating how important is this injury versus that injury. So, so if someone comes into the hospital, say, really sadly, like uh, a bus of athletes were in an accident, and there's all these different injuries, some doctor is going to be doing triage where they're figuring out what is the most serious <coughs> injury here for us to address now, right? 
So if some students just got like a jammed finger and somebody else has a brain injury, that, that doctor needs to practice the judgment of like, look, your, your finger being jammed is going to wait a second, right? We're going to first address and put our energy towards this brain injury. So that's triage. And if you do not have this, right, you can go to either extreme where you can imagine in a hospital where every injury was treated with the same amount of seriousness. Right? What, what kind of constant panic there would be. What exhaustion in that hospital that everything is treated with the same weight of importance. Or on the other end, if you had a hospital that treated everything equally as unimportant, right? Treated everything like a jammed finger. How awful would that be? The, the desperation that you'd have of like, no, treat this seriously. There's real weight and importance to this. So in the same way as a hospital needs to practice triage, the church, like us in a body, needs to practice theological triage. That we need to wrestle through what beliefs are most important and most serious, and which ones are not. And if we don't, you'll have the same environment like that hospital, where if everything is treated as equally important, it's exhausting. Churches can be overly judgmental and looking down on people because they don't do this thing, when actually it's not that important of an issue. And it can be this very tiring place to be because everything's just so important. But on the other hand, you can be in churches that treat everything as very light in the doctrine and theologically. And you're like, no, please consider this deeply because this, this matters to our heart and to our eternity. So we can't treat these things lightly. We need theological triage to be wise. So classically, theologians have broken it down into three tiers. Three tiers, usually. And the first tier is the most important first tier. And these are beliefs that we would say are necessary for salvation and saying that you are a Christian. So to disagree with the first tier, theologically, would almost rule someone out from being a Christian. It would. So this would be uh, the Trinity. This would be the deity of Christ. This would be his resurrection. The belief in his return. So if someone said, actually, I don't believe that Christ was literally raised from the dead, I think we would be right in treating that very seriously and saying that that's actually an abandonment of the historic Christian faith. And if that you leave that belief, it has ramifications for your life, for your faith, and for the way you treat people. So, so we want to treat that very seriously. So that's, again, first tier Protestants today, we would also add salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We treat that very seriously. If you believe that you can be saved by your works and what you do, it almost ruins the faith. It's an abandonment of that that we really see in Galatians and Paul's writing. Say what you just said. You said it too fast for my brain. No, that's great. Please slow me down. Salvation. Yeah, so salvation, knowing Jesus, by grace alone, because of his free gifts, uh, through faith alone, by our trusting him, is how we're made right with God. Okay. That's a critical belief. So if we're saying, actually, no, we can receive it not by trusting him, but by what we do, we would say that that's an abandonment of the historic true Christian faith. That's first tier. Second tier, these are issues that are important to a church working together in a unified way. But we would say that it's not a matter of someone's salvation or their orthodoxy, their being a Christian. So examples of this would actually be baptism that we just talked about. Uh, the Lord's Supper, how you celebrate that. <clears throat> church governance, how we decide a church body should be run. 
So if people disagree on baptism, so we're saying that they believe that infants should be baptized, we would not say that no longer makes them a Christian. We would say that's not a matter of orthodoxy. However, it can make it difficult for you to operate in the same church when there's differences on those beliefs of what that means. Same with the Lord's Supper. Uh, for instance, in Roman Catholic tradition, they believe that that is the actual physical body of Christ, right? That is in that bread, that, that bread has become the body of Christ, literally. You're eating his flesh. And so we would disagree with them in that. So it's very hard to participate in the same church, correct? So it's not worth going to say that people aren't <clears throat> Christians at all if they have a different Lutheran background or a Roman Catholic background or different others, the way they baptize and take the Lord's Supper. We want to respect that, but we do see, say that this is not how we're going to operate as a church. Hopefully this is also why there are many denominations, <clears throat> right? People see that as a lot of division in the church, but I think it's actually a pretty necessary part. Even the word denomination means one part of a whole. That I'm recognizing, yeah, you might be a part of a different denomination, but we're a part of the same whole together. And we just know that there's different ways of maybe reading these scriptures, and we've arrived at different conclusions. And out of respect for one another, we've decided to be a part of different churches. But I actually see that as a matter of unity and understanding. So it's second tier, second tier doctrines. Thirdly, third tiers are matters of conscience and minor beliefs. So, for instance, I'd categorize one's belief about alcohol in this. I know, I know some would say, no, this is absolutely serious. You should never drink alcohol as a Christian. I know others will disagree. I think this is a third-tier issue. It's not the most important. It shouldn't be something that divides us in our body. I think someone should be able to say, actually, I'm from a background where there's been a lot of alcoholism and hurt and abuse, and I don't want to drink alcohol at all. That's on my conscience. I don't think I should. And I'll say, that's, that's okay, being that way. But we should also be okay with others in our body who say, I think it's part of my Christian freedom to be okay drinking alcohol in moderation. Not, not in drunkenness, not at all. Not allowing that at all. But saying, no, clearly, Jesus himself is turning water into wine. And really, like alcohol, what we know in the first century of what they're drinking, he's turning water into wine as a celebration. So we want to allow there to be freedom to not look down and judge one another. Like, Man, do you even know Jesus, right? I cannot believe you do that, right? Either way, because sometimes people who don't drink alcohol feel judged, and those who do feel judged. Other issues like this would be uh, when Christ will be returning. Uh, also matters about when Christ returns, how exactly that will happen, the millennial reign of Christ, <clears throat> any other doctrines around this that we'd say are not going to be matters for us to divide over as a church. It's a third-tier issue. So again, this can be very helpful to keep track in your minds as we're wrestling through as a church what's important to us and our belief. Before I open up for questions, I want to say our statement of faith is clarifying our first and second tier. <clears throat> See that? What is most important that we're saying are matters of salvation to be a Christian. And second tier, also What's really required to believe to operate and function in King's Cross in a healthy way? So that's what our statement should be clarifying and no more. We don't want to have third-tier beliefs in our statement of faith. Otherwise, it's going to be unnecessarily restrictive. Make sense? Now, a little bit into the weeds here. We're part of a denomination called the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. Love the FEC. Um, they're in the midst of changing their, their statement of faith, especially around the return of Christ, because some of these third-tier issues have gotten into the statement of faith, and they recognize that's not the best, so they're in the midst of trying to change that. It's also 
to be honest, not the most well-written statement of faith. So we actually have here the statement of faith from the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's in agreement with the FEC statement, so we, we can have this as our church's statement and still be a part of the FEC. I got that clarified from the president this week as well of the FEC. Um, we can have a statement that's different. It just can't be in contradiction. Does that make sense? So we can't have something so specific in our statement that it doesn't agree with theirs. hope that makes sense. But we follow this one because it's better, better written, think more clear, more concise, fantastic statement of faith. Um, before I read this, also you'll notice there at the bottom, the statement of faith is borrowed from the Evangelical Free Church of America with minor adjustments. Your mind should say, what in the world is a minor adjustment? What did they change, right? Uh, I want to I uh, direct you to the final paragraph, response and eternal destiny. The, I think, second to last sentence, if you count the amen. So the one that believe, says, we believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord and the new heaven and new earth. Now, what we have changed in the EFCA statement of faith, as a matter of, I think, conviction for me, that's a third-tier thing. It's going to wrestle with you guys tonight. Is actually in the statement, eternal punishment right there. The EFCA statement of faith adds the word conscious, eternal conscious punishment. Now, to clarify for you all here tonight, I do believe uh, in hell and eternal conscious, conscious punishment. I do. That's a, a belief that I hold myself and part of the statement of faith for the FEC. Um, however, I just know there's many who love Jesus, who follow him, that also believe in hell, that it is an eternal punishment, right? But it's not one that people are eternally conscious of. And this, just to be honest with you, is one of the most weighty, heavy things to talk about. Because we're talking about the eternal destiny of our neighbors and family members. And so I don't want to just, in a uh, back-and-forth theological disagreement over a word, but understanding what we're saying in this is some of the most sad, difficult things. So knowing that there are great theologians, like John Stott and others, who believe in something called conditional immortalism. And I don't, I don't want to scare you off this, just want to be clear to you. This is a belief that we are not naturally immortal, that actually... Immortality is a gift. That's why it talks about this gift of eternal life in Scripture. That's how people take this. Why in another passage it says, God who alone is immortal. So these people have taken these passages and say, we're actually not naturally immortal. And so you're either going to eternal life or to eternal death. And so in eternal death, it's actually you're going into non-existence and being annihilated. So that's what they take hell to mean. So it's not that they don't believe in hell. It's just that it's not eternal conscious torment. That's a view of conditional immortalism. I would say if somebody wanted to join our church and had this belief, I think there's enough reason in Scripture, and again, people that love Jesus and see this, that I would not want them to say to them, you can't be a member because of that belief. Now, I know for some people this is touchy because it seems like a slippery slope into universalism, and that's not where we're going. I'm not saying that at all. We're not saying that everyone is going to heaven. Please hear me. I believe that there is such a thing as hell and God is bringing judgment. I'm just saying, I think that people who believe in annihilation and conditional immortalism actually maybe have some good grounds in Scripture that we want to respect and say, no, you can be a member of this church. So that's one of those third, uh, 
second tier issues for the ESCA that I thought was a third tier issue. And to be honest with you, this is something I think we should wrestle with as a group of elders in our church when we get there. Does that make sense? But this is the way in Jesus is I can best say, Lord, what would you have us do? I think this is the best route for us to go. So I wanted to bring that to you honestly here tonight. Don't want to hide or cover things up. We got a little bit into the weeds there, right? I told you we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty details. But all the way down to a word and what that means is important in a statement of faith. There are churches that will divide over these things, so I want us to be clear about that. Any questions before I read this, though? That was a lot. Yeah. So just to clarify, um, the word conscious is going to be added, you said? No, so that's a great point. I was not clear on that. In the statement of faith that we have in front of us, it is not included, but the word conscious is included in the ESCA statement of faith. So in ours, the minor adjustment is to make the tent a little bit bigger. We're saying we're actually going to include just a few more people in our church rather than making it a little bit more conservative. So those who say, actually, I think that maybe hell doesn't mean eternal conscious punishment. I think maybe it's just eternal non-existence that God puts people into second death. Or say, we're going to open up the tent for you to be a member. Does that make sense? So, yeah, just a clarification, that means that we are... Um, okay, so this is the saving faith from the Free Church of America. So we are staying with <coughs> this version. Yes, this version... Um, their, just to be again 100% clear, their version includes that word, eternal conscious punishment. So we have everything from their statement except for this minor adjustment. So technically, they'd say this isn't our statement anymore. But I have 99.5% of their statement here. We class that one word being deleted. Does that make sense? So I want to give credence to where this statement came from. I can't call it my own. It was put together by other people. But I also need to own the one change that's been made. Go ahead, Mike. Well, just want to be clear. The, the revised statement of faith, are they going to add the word conscious in there? Oh, this is a great question. This is, this is the no, this, oh, that's a great question. So, here we go. The FEC, the denomination that we belong to, has a different statement of faith. This is The one we're about to read is not theirs. Um, man, that's so much. They have a statement about... Uh, Christ's return, not about this eternal conscious torment, that they are changing to, to make a little bit more open because it was too restrictive. Um, we're not looking at that edited version. This is from the Evangelical Free Church of America. There are too many acronyms that we're going to be talking about tonight. So the FEC, the church we belong to, has a different statement of faith that they're in the midst of editing. And it's not this, and it's not this edited one. This is actually from the EFCA. And I've taken the EFCA statement of faith and just copy-pasted it and then took out the word conscious. That's all that we've done. So we want to go with this. So this is actually, in a weird way, even though the FEC, the denomination we belong to, has a different statement of faith, ours is in agreement with it because it doesn't directly contradict. Does that make sense? So, so we're like a little bit of a bigger tent, so we can fit in with them, right? Like we, we actually agree with everything you say. Um, does that make sense? Does their conscience, uh, conscious punishment, does that mean they'll remember everything that they... I don't understand what conscious... Yeah, so that's... I'm probably not describing that well. It's actually really heavy that people who do not believe in Jesus, as we're saying that they're sent to hell, what hell means in eternal conscious punishment is that you are suffering and you are aware of that suffering. You are consciously 
being tormented and suffering. And that conscious suffering lasts for eternity. That's what we believe. That's what that's what the that's what I do believe. I think Scripture says that's what eternal conscious punishment means. I just know other people find that so heavy that people will be suffering and conscious of that for all eternity. <clears throat> Plus, what Scripture says that there's some ambiguity around that. Paul talks about eternal punishment. He's not talking about conscious. The verse in Revelation that talks about the lake of fire is the second death. We could get into all of that. All I just want to point out is that people have some good biblical reasons to think differently. That that hell is not consciously suffering. When you're actually sent to hell, you are being destroyed. There's a destruction that you no longer exist. And that punishment lasts for an eternal period of time. But we don't believe that. Uh, what I'm saying is that we would allow people to be members who do believe that. Okay. Yes. Okay. So we're making the tent big enough for those people to be a part of King's Cross. As I understood, as you said, personally, you believe that it is eternal, conscious, conscious punishment. I do. I, personally, I, I do. Okay, I agree with that because there's ample scriptures to support that position, so I agree with that. Yeah, I think there are. I think it's actually, it, to, to be honest, it's a complex one. The more you dive in. And so in these issues, it makes me want to have grace with people that think differently. And especially in a body like this, I don't want to say, sorry, you can't be a member. And even though I think there's, because they have some good biblical reasons, even if I disagree with them at the end of the day, I, I want to be able to open up that tent a little more. So we spend a lot of time there. Hopefully there's some clarity and a little bit of understanding and learning in it too. You guys ready to read through this? <laughs> um, and uh, we still got to get you out of here pretty quick, but the ending of all of this is going to be a lot more quick. This is really important. I cannot say that enough. You will see churches that will, in decades and years, I think, lose a passion for Jesus, in part because they begin to sacrifice first and second tier doctrines, things in a statement of faith. So we want to look at these and say, yes, we want to hold these with all of our heart, because it's part of our longevity and faithfulness to Jesus. What I don't want this to be is a template for argument. I want it to be a template for unity. Does that make sense? It's like we agree in this. This is what we, we hold together rather than something that's going to separate us and question each other. So let me read beautifully, I think, what we're saying we believe. First God, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself, and to make all things new for his own glory. The Bible, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the wor words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every area of human knowledge and activity should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. The human condition. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. United in their fallen condition, all human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our High Priest and Advocate. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service through the gifts he gives to the church body and the fruit he manifests in each believer. The church. Thanks for following along, guys. And if you were listening on the podcast, I highly recommend you read this sometime soon, just not hearing it. The church. We believe that the true church comprises, not compromises, comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifested in local churches, whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Christian living. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. We believe in the personal, bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ, at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Finally, response and eternal destiny. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. There we have our statement of faith. Uh, any questions on that? Feel free to ask. And I wanted to read all of it first rather than going through each section and asking for questions. Anything that stands out? Might be a little blurry. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So I, I was looking at the, uh, I think it was the, um, I guess I thought we were part of the evangelical free church because um, the link seems to go directly to that. Okay. That does. That's right Say that again. Um, I got some link that went straight to the evangelical free church of America that included the statement of faith. Yes. So um, was there a separate FEC um, website? There is a separate FEC website, yep, with um, its statement of faith, too. If you would like to read that, I would encourage you to. All right. So I was, I was reading through what I think was even just Free Church from America, um, and, and the word uh, we believe um, the Bible is inerrant, 
and, and uh, I don't see that word in this particular stage of the faith, uh, although it seems to be saying it without saying it, without error, is, is inerrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to address that. I know that this, you know, we talked previously about the yeah. words that Christians choose, uh, inerrancy as opposed to uh, <coughs> uh, infallibility. Yes. Can you just touch on that? Absolutely. So if you see the Bible there, that phrase, that second sentence says, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. A lot of theology, they call that inerrancy, to be without error. means that no part of the Bible and its original manuscripts contains any error at all. So to be infallible means to not be telling any falsehood, right? And so some take that as a, a better blanket term because the inerrancy is even, like some would say, at least in the American evangelical context. I know Mark coming from South Africa, another context that you've been in, um, that the infallibility fits better. Like it, it is fully truth and it does not lead us astray. It is uh, not telling any falsehood anywhere. But to say without error is nearly synonymous to that. So if you're a little confused, like what's the difference? Don't worry, there's people with PhDs that I think get a little confused around this at times. But uh, to be without error is an even more specific way to say that. Not that it's just saying only truth, but it doesn't have any errors even in the details of how it's written. So there's no error in the Bible in the original manuscripts. We're saying as a church that we believe that there is no error, that it is infallible, but also that there's no error. That is a tighter statement around Scripture, even more strict, that I know others in other places, they would say actually that inerrancy is a stumbling block. Um, They'd say it is infallible, but it's hard for me to agree that it's without error. Um, I know we're talking about a great resource. Um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Kevin Van Hoosier who has an article about inerrancy. But if you're looking to dive into more about this, highly recommend that. That's because there's even different ways that conservatives will describe inerrancy and exactly what they mean by it. And so if you want to know kind of what we mean by it, I would look at Kevin Van Hoosier. Um, but again, this is a pretty tough one to describe and to parse out. So I know we can chat a little bit more about that too. But we are going with the without error in our statement. Any other questions here? Great, guys. We have gone through a great many details. Last but not least, let me wrap up these last two pretty quickly. We're going to ask that you also apply for membership. Lay this out in the overview and the process. Someone may attend our church. They may belong to Christ and be baptized. And they may agree on all these first and second tier doctrines, but we also want them to commit and say, I I want to become a member of King's Cross. So we need to have some formal process to recognize that and take a step saying, I want to commit to this church. So we have an application written up. I don't have that printed off for you here yet, but when we're done with all of these classes, we'll make those available. Again, it's fairly simple. We're just asking to hear about how did you come to know Jesus? What's your church background, if any? When were you baptized? So we can get some of that information. And again, have that formal statement from you and signature, I want to become a member of King's Cross Church. Um, Following that, we will have this interview where we see that on the paper, but there's more clarity that comes across in the conversation to hear your story and to get these details. Actually, are these things true of you? I'm pretty confident of the people in this room, but again, as we move forward as a church, we need to continue to have this process in place to make sure that the people who are forming our membership are those who truly have given their lives to Christ. 
are following him. So we want to clarify that via conversation. Uh, so membership also want to acknowledge that may not be for everybody. There's different time periods. A lot of college students who may come to our church may only be here for a brief period of time, may maintain their membership in another church elsewhere. But for those who are here and are here for even a decent amount of time, we would say actually look at joining the church. Look at being a member because there's something beautiful about this commitment. Lastly, we're going to say be confirmed by church elders. So once this interview happens and this conversation, that's not the end of it. We will eventually have elders, and we will ask the elders to look at that, hear from those that did that interview, and they will confirm and say, yes, we accept this person as a member of our church. <coughs> it's kind of a sharing of, of power here, if you will. The membership will be confirming the elders, right? <coughs> saying, yes, we accept you and confirm you as our elders. And the elders will be confirming the members. And that's where we're kind of having this shared. So what we're asking the membership to do in our meetings, kind of Paul described this last time, we'll get into this a little bit more in the future, is to be uh, overseeing and confirming our church budget so that you see our finances and say, yes, we confirm this budget for our church. And secondly, not just finances, but to also be confirming elders. That yes, we accept and confirm this person as an elder of King's Cross Church. <coughs> Those are the main two responsibilities for membership. But it will be the elders that confirm the members. Any questions there? This will be a little messy this first time because we don't have elders. So, again, we're, we're doing this uniquely this first time. And that we will be accepting one another as membership. And then we will move forward from there. Yes? It's a great question. And that's actually, yeah, that's actually partly why this first time is a little bit more challenging, you know? Whereas elders, they're actually able to do the interview, and they're actually able to have that conversation, that smaller group can have that conversation. Whereas like a larger membership, like, yeah, I'll confirm so-and-so, I've never even met them. So that's why we're having the elders do that. But this first time, the importance of getting to know one another, and in this conversations that Paul and I will be having with you, part of that is relying on our recommendation, saying, actually, we've talked with this person, we've talked with this person and this person, and we believe that these people meet these qualifications to become a member that they should be accepted and then asking you to confirm and accept one another. <coughs> so we get to be charter members. Yeah, I think, yeah, we could do that, you know? Not use that Remember? name before, but there's something well, to that. Yeah. Yeah. Founding. The founding members, yeah. The founding members. We'll go there. That's awesome. You want to clap? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could get a badge out there, too. Man, you guys have been great tonight. I, I know this is probably one of our more challenging classes because we're getting into some pretty nitty-gritty details again around doctrine and theology, but thank you for staying with us.